0: Attention! The following podcast may contain topics not suitable for a younger audience. Also, anything discussed on this program is subject to being spoiled, so if you don't want to be spoiled, we'll try our best, but no promises. For more information on Borderline Podcast episodes or Borderline Panels events, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com borderlinepanels. We hope you enjoy the show! Hey, Internet. Uh, welcome to Borderline Podcasts from Borderline Panels. Uh, my name is Austin, or Bebop Shock, or Bebop Shock Infinite on YouTube. And I'm your host today, and will probably be the host forever, uh, maybe. Um, probably. And I'm here today with three other members of Borderline. We have Andrew. Oh, hey. <laughs> hey, Andrew. Um, we have Tori. Hi there. And Sully. Yo, what up? Got all these guys here with us today. Um, For those of you who do not know, uh, Borderline is a panelist group out of central North Carolina. Uh, We have a wide variety of panels that we put on at most, if not all, of the anime conventions in North Carolina. Our most recent convention was Triad Anime Con in Greensboro. Do you guys want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. 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 Sure. Just somebody go ahead and start.
1: Well I, I I think it was a nice con. Um, mm-hmm. we had a change of location this year. It's usually in Winston Salem. Yeah. Um but I, I really like the venue change. Um I think people had a great time. Um panels were pretty good, you know, there were some confusing parts about the scheduling, but I think overall it was a great con.
0: Yeah, I think it was a vast improvement, especially from the um from a venue perspective. Like, the, um, you can actually breathe and move around and have fun, and it was great. It's so. very opulent, too. Yeah, um, really, really opulent. I know the, that yeah. me
2: and another one of our members in Borderline, Marissa, who's one of our panelists, too, we mm-hmm. went into her panel room to scope it out, and it felt, we were like, we don't deserve to be here in not mm-hmm. here, because it's right, just so right. pretty. Mm-hmm. Like, you can tell it's made for, like, fancy business conferences, and, mm-hmm. you know, like, not nerds doing this.
0: Hoity-toity weeaboos. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. You know,
2: we're, we're a higher class of, you know, weeaboo. Mm, I do declare. <laughs> no. But um, I, I was very impressed. I had not gone to triad last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was my first triad. And the thing that convinced oh, okay. me was uh, the fact it was in Greensboro because it's where we're located. So it was much more convenient. And I think I'm going to make it part of my, uh, you know, usual con circle here or circuit here. And uh the panels were good. There were some that I had seen at Ichibon Con. I really enjoy the Eat a Bag panel every time I go. I always enjoy the panels that we put on because I gotta rep the team. I thought the <coughs> guest shameless <must> plug. <coughs> shameless plug. I really love the guest. I think they had great guests. Uh Johnny Youngbosch is always a delight. Mm-hmm. Got some autographs, need to get some more.
0: It was cool. I don't think he'd ever been to an NC con before.
2: Uh I th- did he not go to Anime no, At least one year. He might have. Probably, probably like a long time ago, maybe. Yeah, I believe it was like ages ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope he comes to more cons, because mm-hmm. I enjoy his work. I'm a huge fan of Trigon. Uh, Makoto Tachibana is my husband. Mm-hmm. And he also is Yukio in Blue Exorcist. And uh, he is in Akira. He is... Kaneda. Yeah, yeah.
1: Kaneda yep. and, and he's in a, a Super Danganronpa 2. Mm-hmm. He plays uh, Hinata Hajime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also one of my favorite characters. Also a Power Ranger.
3: <laughs> um, I've been going to Triad since it first started, and the new venue was a welcome change. We were able to move around mm-hmm. and not be gross and sweaty and constantly bumping into other gross and sweaty weeaboos. Excuse me, sweaty. Hi, <laughs> sweaty. <laughs> um, it's always a low-key con. Like, it's, there's a lot of people, but at the same time, there's not. Um, so you can kind of do your own thing and not worry about... like the crowds and whatnot. Um, the new venue was nice. I think I said that already. Um, The only complaint I had were that the panel rooms were really cold. Like, I was running my panel, and I was up there shivering Well, isn't that good?
1: Because you're doing, like, a horror panel? You know, you're getting the shivers?
3: I mean, I guess, but, like... Thrill me, (laughs)
0: chill me, fulfill me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Tori, do you want to talk about your panel a little bit?
3: Uh, Sure. So, I ran uh, Let's Get Spooky, Your Guide to Japanese Horror, um, which is a panel I do that consists of anime and Japanese movies. Um
1: previously known as...
3: Yeah, I used to call it, uh, Weeaboo, but then, um, the staff at Animazement last year kind of nixed that, so <laughs> I unfortunately can't make that golden pun. Anymore. You should have
0: called it Otaku-boo. No. boo <laughs> <laughs> Just rolls off the tongue. Oh, yes. No,
3: that's not as funny. Oh <laughs> um. um.
2: Even though all of us didn't present, maybe it's a good idea to quickly go around and say, oh, these are the panels we're kind of famous for. So those who are in the area Mm -hmm. can be on the lookout for us. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, sure. Um, I I guess I'll start. Uh, I've been doing panels, I think, since, like, what, 2012, 2013? Nerd. Um, Yeah. Um, uh, Mostly I do the um, don't talk about panels. Like, I did a a school days. I did uh, several Evangelion panels, Padoka Magica. Um, those are the ones that I, I usually do the most of and people usually like more. Um, hopefully I'll get to do those more at uh, Ichiban this year. Um, please come.
0: I need people. I really want to do that Ava panel again. Please. Yeah, that would be fun. Or, you know, you know how we tried to do uh, the Don't Talk About Neon Genesis Evangelion panel at StellarCon? But oh my Lord. it was like... We we had six people. It was
1: and all six of them liked it. That's a that's a that is a one hundred percent approval rating. Yes,
2: yes. Called uh, you don't understand Evangelion. Um, maybe I believe you. Or that might have been a a working title at one point. Maybe. I
0: want to check the books? Yeah, I do want to do one about like um like why Evangelion is more important than everyone thinks. And I know that sounds Pretty pretentious But I've got some stuff To well, back it up Like we said A
2: higher that's very class weird. Of weeaboo <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> was, I'm just waiting to
0: do My Hamtaro panel Oh yeah That's that's some pretty some pretty Heady psychological stuff Going on right, right. there You and, know the uh, ham-hams Have a lot of complexes mm-hmm. They do Yeah um,
2: I have only recently started doing panels. I started out doing uh, a few panels for the Japanese club here at the university we go to. And what university is that? The University of North Carolina at Greensboro. What
3: is a Shameless plug.
2: Shameless plug. Come Don't to cool. our completely mediocre school. <laughs> Don't go to our school. I really hope that, like, the dean is not a secret and is just so offended right now. Um... <laughs> But I I had always loved going to panels, but I had noticed some things I did not like. Like, let's read the Wikipedia article for the series. So I was really inspired by all of my friends doing panels. The very first panel I did was this Ichiban con. Ichiban 16 slash 17, Happy New Year's, uh, the con. I did my first two panels. I did Introduction to Osamatsu-san, Six Same Faces. Uh, That went really well did a lot of research on that, had to translate a lot of stuff from Japanese Wikipedia So I broke my own rule Because it's hard to find interviews in- Well I think
0: Japanese Wikipedia you, Well I you, feel like it's a, a better
2: source Because they have a lot more like stuff That they have access to yeah. Because it's Japanese Yeah for sure um, And uh, me and again our friend Marissa Did our Fujoshi versus Fudanchi panel mm. Which was our Yaoi panel oh, uh, It was kind of bad Because we did not have Wi-Fi. I had to download the, the google slides Because I refused to use powerpoint Need to do that and, but it went really well. I think we're going to do it for AZ 2018.
0: You hear that, Marissa? Yeah, that's happening.
2: It, our, our thing is we say it's a race to see who can be the most rotten. So, Oh my lord. It's kind, of, it's kind of, well, you know, Fudanshi and Fudoshi is like rotten girl and rotten boy. Mm-hmm. Reversed. It's mm-hmm. the other way around.
0: Um, Does that make you Robbie Rotten?
2: Okay, let's mention Stop. something at Triad. There was this guy cosplaying Robbie Rotten who had like this toy trumpet and kept blowing it. Like he was literally just walking the circle of the con blowing it and I wanted to run up to him, grab it out of his hands and beat him mercilessly with it. <laughs>
0: Alright, let's, uh, we're coming back from Tangent Town. We're go- well, we're discussing Triad. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'm going to say
2: with that though, I, I hate meme cosplays mm-hmm. I'm gonna be that person say mm-hmm. I go to an anime con to see anime cosplays I don't mind if I see like a Batman or a western fandom mm-hmm. God knows I love my Voltron which is basically American anime at this point point.
1: Mm-hmm. one last um, comment on that if you cosplay a meme the meme dies
2: <laughs> it, that's the rule it like remember rule. when Dashcom was a thing and then the next like as soon as that cosplay uh, con season started, everyone was cosplaying like ball pits. They have a a ball pit costume, like on Amazon, and there was apparently a run of them, and I'm just wondering, Um. like, what was Amazon thinking when all of their ball pit costumes just like went out of stock in (laughs) June, so but I will say that the cosplay overall was Probably really good for a small con. When we went to, Ichi I thought bon so con, too. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed because I felt like no one was bringing their A game. I don't want to say oh well, all the cosplay was bad, but like it, it's either really simple or I'm not being wowed. Mm. But here, I know that my favorite was probably. Uh, Amina, me from Yuri on Ice, who mm-hmm. had this beautiful sequin vest and everything. Like they went the whole nine yards. It looked like they made it themselves, mm-hmm. and great wig. And I was just like, I tried to get a picture, but every time I, I was either rushing to a panel or we were like ships in the night going somewhere else. But I did get a lot of great pics. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really impressed. Mm-hmm. I think, like me and Tori have said before, it's like we live in a magical age where you can go on the internet and buy like a perfect costume. We are out of the dark ages of Milanu so honestly (laughs) and so and because this is the south where you know handicrafts and sewing are so big uh, a lot we have a lot of very talented tailors and seamstresses who live here so it's always nice to see the good cosplay cool
0: um as far as uh, my panels at cons i i do a few uh at triad i'll just talk about that one since that's the most relevant i'll talk about the other ones probably at another time but i did a brief history of kingdom hearts um, but Bless actually, you. it was uh, an extended history of Kingdom Hearts.
2: Wasn't it two hours?
0: It was two hours. Um, I had never done that particular version before. Um, it was a lot of fun. We had a great crowd, a great turnout. Um, as far as I could tell, more than half of the people stuck it out through the entire two-hour experience. And I thought, well, golly gee, I must be doing something right at least a little bit to keep these people entertained for a while. And, um uh, shout out to John, one of our other members, who's like our tech and audio expert. Uh, he helped me come up with a really funny uh, sketch. Well, him and Ryan helped uh, helped me come up with that really funny sketch to do. And I think and that who was is Ryan. Oh yeah, Ryan is another member. Uh, he's he's a borderline guy. He'll you guys will probably hear from him. Oh, in in the future at some point, he really likes Harhi, so I think he wants to come on here and talk about that. Geez. But um oh and Bill, another borderline mm-hmm. borderline pal.
1: I guess a good rule is if we mention you by first name you're in the
0: in crowd. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> we're a
2: group of like nine or ten, aren't we?
0: Yeah. Bill did a loop in the third history panel and it was awesome. His and, beloved loop on. Yeah, and he did it in the afternoon on a Sunday and still like Bless a, him. A good handful of strangers showed up and it was awesome. Tori, were you gonna say something?
3: Oh I was gonna say, speaking of hierarchy, that theme song has been stuck in my head since last night. You mean the dancing one? Yes. Oh my god! I think
2: all of us have had like an anime theme song. So I'm gonna, I've had the real folk blues, the in, the first ending from Cowboy Bebop, in my head for the last three weeks. I know I was in the on the bus today running errands, and all I could think
0: is "real folk."
2: <laughs> oh god, now they're going to hear my terrible singing voice. <laughs> but like,
0: yeah, just playing in my head all day. Platinum disco from Nisei Monogatari has been playing in my head on a loop for the past two years. Just saying. Oh, no. I think I think that's a
2: psychological condition. Seek help.
0: Speaking of psychological conditions, wow. kids. Segway. segway, Perfect segway. Uh, so, uh, this year is 2017, and right now it's March, um, but 20 years ago, this coming July, came a film called Perfect Blue, uh, directed by Satoshi Kon, and that is the topic of today's podcast that we're going to talk about. Uh, we have all watched Perfect Blue fairly recently. Tori and I watched it last night. Sol, you watched some of it today. Uh, I've seen it like a thousand
2: times. Okay, but I had, like I said, I had to run errands today, and I right. was like, I need to rewatch it before mm-hmm. we talk about it. And me and Tori got to my apartment, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna put it in real <laughs> quick and take as many notes. And I was like, it was a combination of what I was watching and what I was like. Taking from my memories, so you right, don't right. you don't
1: do Perfect Blue real quick. That's like you yeah. <laughs> can.
2: It's it's a movie that you watch it and then you spend three hours questioning everything your life. Yeah,
1: honestly, uh, did
2: you
0: watch
1: it again recently, Andrew? Who? Oh, um, uh, I've I've yeah, like I think a week ago. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, but yeah, I've I've seen it too many times. I I should also probably seek help.
0: Probably, um, I think it's
2: one of those movies that if you call yourself an otaku or an anime fan you need to see it at least once it's not mm-hmm. a movie for everyone but you need to say you've seen it
0: yeah and it's it's definitely uh, really important if you're looking at sort of the totality of like important anime films in general um just basically anything from satoshi khan's personal like repertoire from his resume is sort of worth checking out um He's got a lot of really unique stuff, and it's uh, really sad that he passed away in uh, on my birthday, I think, August 24th of 2010. Uh, so, shout out to Satoshi Kon.
2: I know mm-hmm. that me and Tori's first anime con together, that's how we became friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, Satoshi Kon was slated to be a guest at Animeism in 2010, I was really excited for the chance to meet him because Perfect Blue... And Tokyo Godfathers are some of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. I have to watch Tokyo Godfathers at Christmas. It's, like, required. Such a and, great movie. And he passed away. And I was like, I get this chance to meet this this influential director mm-hmm. for the genre. And he, he's gone. And that was, like, a really hard thing to handle. But um, I think his work is going to be with us, like, understood and respected. I think he's better than... And Miyazaki and I'm going to be you know murdered for that. But I mean they're
0: they're so unique. I mean they're so hard to compare, honestly. Yeah, like Miyazaki's got a totally different like style, style yeah. and approach to film than Satoshi Kon has. I really
1: think that that's that's something that we see uh, characteristic of the anime genre mm-hmm. is that no one director has their single style. Like mm-hmm. like you can't really compare them to other directors. Like there is no objectivity with how. Um, you know, let's say House Moving Castle mm-hmm. versus Millennium Actress. You know, they're, they're they're apples and oranges. Like they are anime, but anime itself is very arbitrarily defined mm-hmm. as a genre, which is actually many different genres.
0: Right, of course. And um, I think it's I think people are starting to realize more and more. At least I I hope that they're starting to realize more and more that anime is not a genre but a medium. Right. Just like how you know, like animation is a medium. And uh, for anybody to like pigeonhole anime into meaning like this one thing is sort of doing the whole thing a disservice. Mm-hmm. Um, but to talk
2: about yeah. Perfect Blue in relation to anime as a medium.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I had a friend who I was recommending movies to, and I recommended Perfect Blue, and he was a little uninterested. And he's a little older, and we're both but we're both movie buffs. And he said, "Well, I'm not interested in anime like you are," mm-hmm. and because when he thinks anime, he thinks like crazy spiky pink hair, and huge eyes, and exaggerated features, and things like that, and I had to explain, like, yeah, like, Yu-Gi-Oh, <laughs> Or he knows oh, I geez. love Sailor Moon, so I think he thought I was, like, recommending a Sailor Moon movie, but I had to explain, like, no, uh, one thing that's interesting about Satoshi Kon is, one of the reasons he loved animation was he had complete control over the action. When you're doing a live-action movie, you're kind of, you know, in the hands of the physical laws of nature right Mm -hmm. but i know i watched this if you ever have a chance to watch the youtube channel every frame of painting Mm -hmm. he discusses plug um love that channel uh he discusses satoshi khan and he talks about how uh sort of the speed of impact for movement because you can cut frames animation you can have different impacts for things like punches or shots and satoshi khan loved to utilize that Perfect Blue was going to be a live action movie, but there was a budgetary problem to make yeah. it animation. I think that's just one of the happy mistakes mm-hmm. that makes it so brilliant.
0: I think it's really funny too how, um, like, I was reading up on the uh, on the movie um, recently, and um, it said like, I don't know they they wanted to do like they wanted to do an adaptation of the book, but Satoshi Kon and the production team really didn't like the book all that much like it didn't seem like they were really into the story because they were like this story's not gonna make a very good movie so they sort of talked to the um whoever's in charge of licensing or whatever um i don't know the full full context of it but they were like all right you can you can you know do a departure from the book but you have to keep like a few elements so i I mean i kind of like to think that perfect blue is more just like satoshi khan's work rather than it being like a straight adaptation. His premiere work, too. Yeah, it's, it was his first film that he directed. Like, um, mm-hmm. a few years prior, he okay. worked on a short called um, Magnetic Rose, which was from uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, who's the director of Akira. Uh, Magnetic Rose is part of a a three-short film collection called Memories. And uh, have you guys seen Magnetic Rose? Anybody I seen have that? not. No. Uh, mm-hmm. but I should look that up.
2: Then. Yeah,
0: it's this it's this really awesome like short film about these like astronauts that show up at this. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I think it like this um like abandoned space station or something like that, and they go inside and it's like this weird like bourgeois like French Revolution style like palace on the inside, and then they have this whole like existential journey with like the ghosts of the people that used to live in this space station it's really like the whole fantasy like reality dynamic plays out in sort of like ghost form like spirit form that with seems like memories to be a very
2: common thread with con yes, is, is exactly. existentialism the idea of a ghost as yes. we see in perfect mm-hmm. blue And uh, reality and fantasy kind of having a very blurred line.
0: Definitely. That's sort of his shtick, honestly.
2: I know one thing I want to mention, because I'm an obsessive fan of Italian giallo movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Perfect Blue has been compared to works by Mario Bava, and one thing I find hilarious, it has to be on purpose. Uh, The TV drama that Mima starts acting in is about a killer who is murdering fashion models. Mm -hmm. Mario Bava, I'm not sure if it was his debut work, but the one he was most famous for of his early uh, oeuvre, was Blood and Black Lace, which is about a killer with a claw who's murdering fashion models. And I know someone, a reviewer, an early reviewer for Perfect Blue said, it's like Walt Disney and Mario Bava, you know, directed a film together. And Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great comparison. To me, it reminds me, ironically enough, so much of Daria Argento's perfect, uh, not perfect, red, but deep red, Profondo Rosso. Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole thing about identity, uh, mental illness... A killer, uh, someone, uh, the, the main character being framed for a murder and having disordered... Well, that's closer to uh, Bird with a Crystal Plumage. It kind of feels like a hybrid of those mm-hmm. movies.
0: That's yeah, really interesting, because I, I, I not, I'm not familiar with that guy's work, but um, from the way you describe it, it sounds like that's a pretty spot-on... Uh, Comparison. If
2: you enjoy Perfect Blue, yeah. not just as an anime film, but just the, the general themes of it, mm-hmm. I would definitely seek out Italian jalo movies. It's the Italian word for yellow, if you you know want to Google mm-hmm. it. But Dario Argento and Mario Bava are, uh, I think that they kind of influenced Japan a lot because their films got uh, ported over and they really were popular with Japanese audiences. So you can kind of see those like European murder mystery
0: vibes in a lot of Japanese crime dramas. Mm-hmm. Okay, do you guys want to talk about, like, we sort of addressed it um, a minute ago, but want to talk about how, like, in this particular film, you know, Satoshi Khan does this in a lot of his films, but the uh, reality fantasy dynamic of this film and how that plays out. Andrew, you want to say something about that? Mm. Ah. Well, I think that's um, a
1: staple for psychological movies and how they really work. It's, it's about taking things that we know and, and twisting them around mm-hmm. and molding them into uh, into new things. And I think that's a, a big reason why he chose animation over live action, because the, the way that he transitions the two, the way that he um, tries to resolve the two worlds, the reality and the fantasy worlds, is is not something that can be done so easily with a live action model or... Um, live action actresses. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's something that has to be very quick, very fluid, and uh, that type of of I guess metaphysical uh, uh, visual that he enjoys so much has to be on the anime medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's the reason why we really are able to appreciate the fact because it's it's able to reconcile the two in the way that makes us both very intrigued but also very terrified.
0: And the way he does that technically, like from a direction and animation perspective is, like, almost instantaneous. Like, the cuts between, you know, what the audience perceives as the scenes that Mima is filming, uh, like, as, you know, an actress, and cutting, like, intercutting between those scenes and her, like, real-life scenes are, like, almost, like, almost instantaneous. Like they're it's, jump uh, cuts, basically. Ba- yeah, they're basically jump cuts. They're so quick and, I mean, that's possible to do in live action, but it's just so much harder because, you know, animation is a medium. Like like somebody was saying earlier, um, you can manipulate every little thing. Like, it's all totally under your control. With live action, there's a lot of other things going on. Like, like for example, if you wanted to do a scene like that, well, like in live action, like you would have to account for... You know, staging and um, like mise en scène and you know, mise-en-scene. lighting. Mise en scène, whatever. Um, French accent. A higher
2: um, class of Ouibou. Mm, <laughs> yes, Ouibou's
0: <wee-bus laughs> who use phrases like mise en scène.
2: And, <laughs> and then du- call
0: him Satoshi Khan. Omelette du fromage.
2: Satoshi Kon.
0: <laughs> Kon Satoshi. <laughs> uh,
2: I think one thing is uh, if you were to do this in live action, like they intended, to have those jump cuts because mm-hmm. the, the scene transitions are just so seamless. And that's including the backgrounds. You'd have to do nothing but tight shots almost mm-hmm. in order to replicate that without the audience, you know, catching on before it happens.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, on that note, I would like to um, to say there was a bit of a live action of Perfect Blue, but it isn't called Perfect Blue. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure uh, who might be familiar. It's a pretty. I think he's a pretty mainstream director, but uh, Aronofsky mm-hmm. um, did his film. Um, Black Swan. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he actually purchased the rights from Fletcher yes. yes. because Khan mm-hmm. was his mentor. Uh, when Khan actually passed away, Aronofsky was the one who wrote his obituary. Oh, wow. Right. So they were very close mm-hmm. and there were many, some talks in Hollywood about plagiarism, mm-hmm. um, but people weren't very educated on the issue. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the scenes, a lot of the transitions, he was able to, to capture mm-hmm. in Black Swan. Um, he was able to capture um, many of the 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 metaphysical themes, the the femininity themes, he was able to to capture that, but in a different way. So he had to, I guess, evolve the medium to change with the live action. Right.
2: Yeah. What I find kind of amusing is that Perfect Blue is not a direct adaptation of the novel, and yeah. Black Swan is not a direct ad- ad- adaptation right, right. of Perfect Blue, even though they bought the rights in order to produce it. So. It's, it's a
1: transition of scenes. And now they bought the rights, uh, I, I suppose this is an important note, um, uh, Aronofsky purchased the rights so that he could use certain... Uh, uh, camera scenes.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, like,
1: I think there was a, a scene with like papers mm-hmm. and certain silhouettes that, that were very much scene, associated.
3: That and the scene where Mima's in the bathtub. Right,
2: right, that, that was, was the main one.
3: complete copy of the way it was in Perfect Blue. Right.
0: If you can say shot for shot yeah. between animation and like uh, action. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely, yeah, for sure, like the, the, the framing is the same from, uh, that wasn't in Black Swan, that was in Requiem for a Dream, which is, uh, Aronofsky's previous film before um mm-hmm. Black Which Swan, one? Requiem for a Dream. Was that not in
3: Black Swan? No, it
0: wasn't Black Swan, no. B- Black Swan Requiem also for had a, a bathtub scene. Yeah, oh, that's what it?
3: I thought.
0: Yeah, okay, uh-huh. well he did it first in Requiem. Yeah, 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 for a yeah. Dream. He he learned that from yeah. Khan. Like,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He he does he does that with several. I think.
0: Yeah, because uh uh gosh, who's the Jennifer um she's in uh, Labyrinth. Jennifer oh. Connelly. Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, yeah, she's the Connelly. actress in um Requiem for a Dream and she's the one in the bathtub scene uh, in in Requiem for a Dream that does the same exact Mm -hmm. you know direct over the head shot looking straight down and then the underwater screaming scene Um,
2: to go back to the the concept of fantasy and animation mm -hmm. one thing that always strikes me when I watch this film is at the very beginning when Mima is preparing for the concert and she has the girls running around doing her hair and her makeup they're all very plain they're all very plain looking her manager's very plain looking Um, And so it's this idea of the, The Japanese idol singer As a fantasy Her identity as an idol singer Is cultivated to have this perfect fantasy world You see when she's in her civilian life She's a very plain girl Just average everyday girl on the street but then when she's an idol, she's almost a different person, even though she doesn't look very different. It's kind of shocking that no one stops her on the street when she's mm-hmm. just in her street clothes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, when I was telling my friend about this, again, he was like, oh, pink hair and big eyes. Satoshi Khan's animation can be exaggerated, but here it's very natural looking. The proportions are natural. Uh, they have a little bit of an anime influence. The eyes are a little bigger and a little softer, but uh, they look very live action, and the animation is done in such a way that it looks almost rotoscoped in some shots. Mm -hmm. Um, The only character I can think who looks a bit inhuman is Me Mania, but I think he's supposed to be deformed. I don't think it's supposed to be like uh, a metaphorical depiction of him, although there are, I think, a lot of shots where he Mm -hmm. is drawn in certain ways to to emphasize certain themes.
0: Yeah, and I think with that character, it it seems to be that the way that the uh, the way that Con directed it is that certain scenes you're supposed to know that Mimania is there like in the flesh present and in other scenes it's supposed to be ambiguous whether or not mima is imagining him or if he's really there um so i think that was that's really interesting like whenever it's like towards the middle of the film where she's filming the uh the scene outside and she looks over they're, they're on, like, a, a dock or a bridge yeah, or something so she's like that. Yeah, talking
2: to the other actress. Yeah,
0: and, like, she looks over and sees mania and then looks back, and he's gone. It's like one of those... That, that scene, it's like, well, you don't know if he's really there or not. Like, there's nothing that really says, like, concretely, like, Mania is there. Mimania um, um, confirmed for Batman. Exactly. <laughs> or, but, you know, there's that scene, like, in the beginning where he's he's definitely there. He's because a security guard. No, no, he's just an attendee. No, he's wearing no. the uniform. Remember, yeah, he protects her from the drunk girls. Really? Yeah.
3: You mean the drunk guys. Drunk guys, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: thought he I thought he was just there, and he just See, did that anyway. See, that's something I find
2: interesting about his character, no. is, you know, there's a scene where he's holding his hands out, and it's like he's yeah. holding her. Mm-hmm. He kind of has placed himself in this fantasy role of a knight in shining armor. He is. Uh, a lot of people talk about Mima's uh, fractured identity, and they just think actress, herself, and then the idol, but really she has no control over her identity. They are constant projections, um, especially when they talk about otaku culture. I feel like me Mania is just a conglomeration, like uh, a human representation of this nebulous otaku culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the very beginning of the movie, I think it's interesting that it opens on the Super Sentai performance.
0: Yes, I wanted to talk about that. Um
2: Because if you notice... I'm sorry. You notice that at the front of the audience are children, and they're just, you know, having fun. The farther the camera pans up to the back is all these otaku filming and photographing Mm. obsessively.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that scene is really, really interesting, because whenever I was watching it last night, I was trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who had never seen it before, someone who knew nothing about it, had never heard of it or anything, somebody who just, like, randomly went to the theater in 1997 and happened to watch an anime movie called Perfect Blue. Um, Let's think about the anime climate of that time period. It's like, well, a lot of, you know, anime fans were not used to, you know, anime being super, like... Accessible. Not accessible. I, I, I would say, like, self-referential. Mm-hmm. Like, um, most anime that people who, you know, were, you know, anime fans in 1997 had grew up with was anime that was, like, you know, adaptations of, like, kids' books and, like, Gundam and stuff like that. The really popular things, like Dragon Ball Z, the stuff that is very cartoonish. Um, but, you know, around, you know, 95 is when Evangelion came, came out... And that really started... I mean, it wasn't the first. There were others. But, like, it started the conversation of, like, anime being more than just, like... It can be a psychological, like, experience. Like, it can deal with these really heavy subjects. And Perfect Blue, you know, does that as well. And, um... Anyway, what I was getting at was, you know, starting the movie off with this, like, scene from a Super Sentai movie. Um, it's like, well... You know, as the movie starts, you think, is this going to be a movie about, like, Common Rider, or, or what? And then, it, and then it pans out from that, and it's sort of, like, setting you up for the entire film. It's like, it starts, and you think that this is actually happening in the narrative, and then it pulls out, and you realize, oh, it's a stage. And then the movie continues to do that throughout the entirety of the film, where you see shots of Mima, and then it pulls out, and it's, it was just a television like, it was a shot of Mima being an actress, not being her actual person. And you see that with scenes with, like, the detectives, like, in the narrative and stuff, too. Uh, you see that in the scene where, um, like, she's in the interrogation room, um, and she's being questioned by the police characters. And then the audience starts to think that maybe this was a whole... The entire film up to that point was just her imagination. But then it pulls out, and it, you know, it, it's, it's, the, um, it's the setup and the takeaway... Because, you know, the audience for that brief moment is meant to believe, oh, this is, like, the big reveal of the movie. It's, like, it's revealing that Mima is, like, actually, you know, really unstable and she's imagining all of this. But then they pull out and then reveal that, no, that, in fact, was part of the narrative of the story that she was acting in. So it does a lot of those set-up and takeaways. And I think that Super Sentai... I might be giving away too much credit, but that Super Sentai scene in the beginning sets up the audience for what they're seeing is not exactly what they're supposed to believe. Mm -hmm. And um, unless anybody else has thoughts on that, does somebody want to talk about um, idol culture? I definitely would. Okay. Tori Um, and Andrew, you guys want to talk about that? Sure, go ahead. Well, I I think that this movie does an
1: excellent job with uh, analyzing and discussing um, idol culture and more importantly, its toxicity mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to its relationship with women, because idol culture, uh, and this can be applied with uh, with uh, I-, I guess the concept of the the uh, boy band as well mm-hmm. in Japan. Johnny's care. Um, right? It's that it, it isn't for the people who perform in it; it's for the fans, and only for the fans. Uh, um, Most of the time, whenever you have idols who are signed a contract, they are signed based upon all these different conditions. You know, they aren't allowed to have boyfriends, they aren't allowed to act promiscuously, they can't be lascivious, you know, they have to remain pure to the audience to sell merchandise and to sell CDs. And they use the term graduating. Which means that whenever a woman become or a girl, I guess, becomes a woman and is no longer appealing to this fan base, they graduate her up, which I would say is the same as just kicking her out because she isn't what they want anymore. You know, uh, whenever a woman, I guess, or anyone sings for their own pleasure and dances, you know, for their own fans, you know, like we have people like Dolly Parton... Who, who have been dancing for, for decades, and people don't really care whether or not she's wearing the poofy pink dress or the tiara. Right. Um, it's, it's always about uh, this age and, and seeing women as objects unless as performers and people who are talented in their own right. In the background, there is a manager. There is someone who writes the songs. There is someone who directs the songs, directs the dancing. <laughs> they are almost, I guess, puppet-like. With, with how they're dealt with. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's about Mima trying to break from that mm-hmm. and become an actress in her own right. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts
3: to Um, Well, tying in with the other themes, it kind of shows how, like, fabricated and fake the entire idol industry is. I mean, you have the exception with some. Like, I would say Kyary's pretty true to who she is as a person. She does what she wants. And Shout like, out to Kyary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um... The bag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It just, like, the girls and even the guys are just so robotic and it's, like, who are they? Like, I wonder sometimes if they even have a sense of who they are because they're trying to put on this, like, persona for all of these people. And they have to, like you said, stay pure and Mm -hmm. they can't engage in romance or anything that's seen as, like, sexualized or, um, adult or, um...
2: I once read that uh, female idols, all of their makeup artists, they are only surrounded by gay men, so they cannot, like, get with them. There's yeah. actually mm-hmm. a, you can get a job as a gay man in Japan just being mm-hmm. an idol's assistant so that it's guaranteed she won't, like, yeah. fall with you. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: There is um, one idol, though, I can't remember her name, but she loves to insult her fans. She's like, <laughs> I'm single forever, just like all of you. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm just like... Uh. i mean that's true well
1: well, in a sense um uh, i i've heard this phrase in idol culture a lot Mm -hmm. um it the reason why the idols are supposed to remain single because the mentality is you're dating your audience yes they come to your shows they buy your merchandise without your audience you know you're you're just you know you're just some bimbo in a a sparkly pink dress so I, i guess it's about respect and it's about uh, not really being your own person, but existing for your fans and the commerce that they yes. bring with them.
3: Or then you just become Ayahirano and do whatever the heck right, you right, want. Right, right, right. I was very, I, I was very,
1: very <laughs> mad with the international community with how they handled yes. Ayahirano. I thought yes. that was just revolting, yes. misogynistic. It was the worst. And I think that it's those types of cases that I think drove Cone to really uh, analyze this Mm -hmm. type of toxicity in the idol culture. Mm -hmm. Because this movie is about more than Mima. Mima is a figurehead of the modern woman, of someone who Who wants to do this, but then sometimes wants to do that sometimes she wants to seem pure, other times she wants to be adult
2: mm-hmm.
1: and but. she wants to do it for herself.
2: right but
0: right. yeah yeah, but um, I think all of that feeds into like one of the most interesting scenes I thought was like the scene after you know she does the rape scene mm-hmm. like she acts in the rape scene and then she gets back to her apartment and realizes that like her fish have died. And it's, it's not that those two things were related, it was just, like, she went through this, like, traumatic acting experience, and then she gets home and her fish are dead, and she's just like, well, frick, and then she, like, destroys, like, her apartment and, like, knocks stuff over, and then she, like, slams herself down on her bed and says something, like, like, in reference to the rape scene. Of course like, I didn't want to do it. Exactly, of yeah, course I didn't yeah. want to do it, but I wanted to make my manager happy and all the people that got me where I was, I wanted to, I didn't want to let them down. And I think that was, that's, that's sort of a representation of that sort of idle culture mentality Sort of manifesting it in the way Mima thinks about herself and the things that she you know allows and doesn 't allow herself to do
1: mm-hmm. and that Hollywood mentality you mm-hmm. know uh, in in any type of entertainment industry, there are different standards for men as there are for women. Women have this expectation to you know do do everything that men do except in three inch heels. Uh, you know, in loose-fitting tops and uh, and whenever you're under the age of 35.
0: Or naked. Right, or, or
1: naked. naked, or naked. Princess Peach fights and smash in smashing high heels in a frying pan. <laughs> <laughs> right, right,
3: right. Um, I think, too, seeing, like, Rumi's character and how that, like, portrays the unrealistic expectations and, like, self-esteem issues that um, women get when they see these manufactured idols Um, Because, I mean, she essentially wanted to be and became Mima. Um, So I thought that was kind of interesting because that's something you see, you know, in our culture and in other cultures is women and even men trying to harm themselves to fit these, like...
2: Fantasies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One thing I find kind of tragic is it's still going on today. Uh, If you're a Sailor Moon musical fan, you might know about this... Uh, uh, more Eternal was the latest Sailor Moon musical, and when they announced the cast, they announced the actress or Sailor Mercury, who I've, I've sadly forgotten her name, and the fans did some research about her previous roles, and she had done uh, a gravure book, and gravure, I'm probably mispronouncing that, I found out there were two ways to pronounce it, I looked it up specifically for this podcast. Uh, in Japan, they're basically softcore cheesecake style books. It uses them in a school uniform, a bikini. Mm-hmm. It's not very sexual, it's very yeah. softcore, but it's seen as tainting the image of Sailor Mercury. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though she's a, the actress is a woman with her own life and her own career. When she's playing Sailor Mercury, like when an idol is playing their idol character, essentially, they represent that. And yeah. mm-hmm. it was so bad that they, fans would go on Twitter and berate her and call her and basically shame her for it That's to the point terrible. that she wrote on Twitter. She says, I'm sorry that I've offended or I've hurt the character of Sailor Mercury. I'm going to drop out the musical. And they recast her. And it, it was just it was kind of like a watershed moment and i did think of that scene in perfect blue where they find out that she's doing some more sexual photography to kind yeah. of get by and it's it it's 1997 2016 and 17 we're we're two, 20 years and we're still doing that
3: yeah mm-hmm.
1: well i think that that um that goes into the thought of this, this categorization. You know, whenever you're in the public image, there is no type of line drawn in the sand. Like, this is my professional life, this is my personal life, this is my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that this was very well documented in the film, uh, whenever Mimania was uh, following her and taking the pictures, like mm-hmm. uh, like running the blog, mm-hmm. for example, like she picked up eggs and milk at the grocery store. She ran here and fish food, right, right, uh, and and she was
3: running cow brand, errands. cow brand
0: milk, yeah. right, yeah. It's right. It's
3: my one, uh, what did he call it? My one, um, oh yeah, my the... one splurge or something. Right, yeah, like right, that. right, right, right. The, it's yeah, like absolutely. it's like translating
1: this purity. Uh, into everything like Mm -hmm. even um, I I guess it's in a way like politics you know Mm -hmm. if you do anything even when you're not in your office you know you're you still have that personality that you have to maintain hanging with the squad right Mm -hmm. right right you know hashtag living pure yeah Yeah, uh, yeah, like like, hashtag I woke up like this (laughs) right hashtag humble and blessed (laughs) you can you can never take off the purity ring yeah It's it's like a promise that you're making to your fans, although it's very plastic in nature. Mm -hmm. But there is no categorization, you know. Whenever you're an idol, whenever you're pure, you you can't just become unpure and then become pure again. Mm -hmm. It's like once you're tainted, you're tainted. Mm -hmm. Which, like, let's say the Mercury case, you know, there is no getting pure again. There is no coming
0: to the light. Mm -hmm. There is Group A and Group B, and you have to pick one. sort of as a departure from the topic of, um, sort of idol culture, because I think we've we've talked about that a a Mm -hmm. bunch. Um, so I want to talk a bit about the soundtrack Mm -hmm. of Perfect Blue. Um, it's pretty spooky sometimes. Um, like there's that one soundtrack that sounds basically like heavy breathing. Do you guys remember that? Oh, definitely! Like it's it's like somebody is like making a song out of like Darth Vader noises, and like it's just like <sighs> <sighs>
1: okay. it, it reminded me a lot of uh, Silence of the Lambs. Yes, um, I want to like, talk about that too. Yeah. Oh, oh, do you have that? Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely.
0: It's totally on my list. Um, and then there's that there's that one song that sounds like heavy breathing, which I mean I think fits just really well in the movie, just in general. Because like me mania has that like like mini shots where he's like heavy breathing, so having a soundtrack piece in there that is basically like heavy breathing turned into a musical track, like a very um atmospheric sort of uh, musical piece, I wouldn't even really call it a song, it's more like a an atmospheric accent with audio ambiance. um yeah, ambiance um. So I think that's uh, really appropriate and very unsettling um, when used in that way. And then there's that one soundtrack piece that uh, that one song that sounds like bees. Mm-hmm.
2: It's the yes. it's the fake Mima theme. Yeah, yeah. Is that what it's is that what it's called? It's like false so. Mima or theme of uh, imposter mm-hmm.
0: Mima. And that that track in particular really reminded me of 2001: A Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. like uh, the monolith theme. Like whenever the monoliths show up, and it's just like this ever rising like like chorus that sounds like a bunch of people trying to sound like bees, like bees. a beehive, like <laughs> bee- <laughs> stuff like that. It's just kind of crazy, but imagine an entire choir doing that. And that's, that's in, bee in bee costumes. In B costumes. Exactly. I'm sure Satoshi <laughs> Khan asked for that directly. The, uh, the Tokyo Philharmonic Bee choir. <laughs>
2: That's my favorite track on the uh, in in the film. Mm-hmm. I, I've listened to it a lot. I, I think it just that. Mm-hmm. Oh, god, that sounds so <laughs> stupid. But like, uh, it, it, it's. I think it's sums up the feeling of the movie. Yeah, it, the, it's very tense, but it feels really claustrophobic because yes. it doesn't have like a wide musical range. It, it, it just increases, mm-hmm. and you just feel this sense of dread. From this theme And I I listen to it a lot I I really think That music in this movie Is one of the things That helps with the atmosphere Mm -hmm. It Was really It it was Tailor made For this movie Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think it really plays Into Um uh, nature mm-hmm. uh, and and very basic instinct we hear things like bees like insects like like as Sully said very claustrophobic types of sounds mm-hmm. and it it riles up this natural nerve in us to mm-hmm. to run away or to just show that kind
0: of very natural uh fight or flight fear yeah uh and i I think it did a stellar job mm-hmm. you know you mentioned nature, and there's uh, something else that the film does visually uh, which is a lot of um like hyper violence and mm-hmm. a lot of the color red, which is funny because the movie is perfect blue, not perfect red. Um, if it were perfect red, that would be too obvious and it would be stupid probably. But anyway, um, like in uh, there's a lot of shots where you see like Mima and the backdrop is just like a solid red like, color, like, when she's looking, like, at her computer or something in her apartment, like, you can see her, and there's just this red background, and, like, in the elevator, uh, with the boombox scene, like, when the, uh, when the screenwriter gets killed, Uh, spoiler alert, by the way, forgot to add a spoiler notice at the beginning of this podcast. Um, If you guys have been listening to this, which you have, spoiler alert, sorry I didn't (laughs) let you know beforehand, but anyway, I'll make sure to do that in the future. Um, Like that scene where the elevator comes down and the boombox is like blaring, and the guy is just like looking at it, there's like a red floor, and um, like the color red like is... You know, most normally associated with, like, intensity or, like, passion or something like that. And then there's a lot of scenes where they're, like, bloodied bodies and the, the red is just so vibrant. Um, I think that does um, so another... Another thing
2: in common with Jello movies is how vibrant and almost mm-hmm. cartoony the red is. And Hammer Horror has a lot of that, yes, too. It's like, yes. the, the red is a theme... There was an internet reviewer who I, I was reading to get some ideas of what to talk about before we did this podcast who said... His Do you theory, remember who it was? Uh, it, the, I know the name of the article is The Use of Red and Perfect Blue. Oh, um, okay. I didn't even read that. Dang. And <laughs> uh, he says his theory is red represents insanity and blue represents sanity. And so oh, in the he... end, when she... the blue sky and all the blue and that's washed over after all that red is... Mm-hmm. the perfect blue is... She's reaching sanity.
0: Oh, I see. So mm-hmm. it's
2: like the perfect blue is not like blue, like depression or any yeah. of the things you would think. It's perfect sanity. It's mm-hmm. becoming whole again, it's becoming healthy.
0: Yeah, again. if you if you look at you know from from like what Andrew brought up, like the the nature aspect, like the either you know the natural world or the human nature. Um, I, if if red means like passion intensity, blue like because you know we as human beings like we experience the sky and like during it's you know it's daytime we know everything's fine like when the sky is clear and blue like that's like you know calmness and you know fineness and like the sense of being all right like if you're outside looking at the sky and it's blue um, you like know everything's going to be is okay red,
2: it's the apocalypse
0: exactly <laughs> right or it's like the coming night and like night is when you yes. know Things are, you know, scarier and unknown, and we can't see, so, like, we're, we're more, you know, intimidated by the nighttime than we are the daytime.
1: And and I, I think I could be wrong about this, but I think most, if not all, of the, the murder scenes uh, take place in dark spaces mm-hmm. and at night. Whenever she's, she's running away from uh, Rumi-chan, mm-hmm. um, that's also taking place at night. Yes. Um, and whenever she's uh, in the, the asylum watching Rumi-chan, it's during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that, that that applies very seriously with how Colin decided to direct uh, uh, the time scope of yes. how he ran the movie.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you got to think about that too. From like, you know, this is an animated film. All of those decisions had to be made purposefully. So like, it, it wasn't a coincidence mm-hmm. that he happened to set a scene during the daytime, and it wasn't a coincidence that he happened to set a scene at nighttime. Like, or
2: even the weather, like, it's yeah, exactly. A lot,
0: Sean. Exactly. Like, all of those decisions were made for, like, an explicit reason.
2: I think, too, to go with the idea of color and and uh, the setting, it's set in the city. Mm-hmm. There are We talk about nature. There are no natural shots, really, in this movie. Mm-hmm. It kind of continues that theme of claustrophobia when she's running away from... This vision of Rumi as the false Mima mm-hmm. it, It's its like a maze that she's running through She's trapped She can't escape because she's in such a narrow, confined space And when she's in her room If her room continued the idea of red as insanity Her room is painted red mm-hmm. She And she has most of her breakdowns in her bedroom mm-hmm. You know, the whole Anata wa is in her bedroom mm-hmm. When she... One scene I really like I only notice it this time I watched it when Rumi is setting up her computer for the first time. You see Mima's reflection yes. in the screen. It's like that she's looking at that mm-hmm. online identity. It's like it's an entity, like it's literally a, a version of herself living inside the computer, mm-hmm. and it's in her room. It's her room is almost a representation of her mental state,
0: of her mind. You know, you bring up that reflection thing. That happens a lot more than in just that scene. Like the train, when the she's train, listening to the cham music. Yeah, she's listening to the cham music. That happens every single time she's in the train and it happens whenever she's in the car with her Producer or her and I ma- that agent or whatever. at the end when she gets into the car, or maybe it yeah. doesn't.
2: I forget because I believe there is something significant about when she gets to the car with the reflection. I just can't remember. It, it right was. Now. It was. She her. looks in the rearview mirror. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. She's looking back at herself now. Yes. Because you yeah. notice she never looks at mirrors. Mm-hmm. She looks at something that creates something of a not distorted, but more of a translucent, mm-hmm. ghostly reflection than a yes, mirror does. Right. And a she, window, a screen.
0: And and most of the time it's like incidental reflections where like it's it's not you purposely going out of your way to look at your reflection it's like she's already being reflected it she she just happens to notice it in that moment like when she's looking outside like towards the skyline like she sees her reflection in the like the door mirror and in the computer and all that stuff so it's it's all incidental it's all she's not seeking that out she just happens to see it and it's just like um you know that that control aspect like when she's out of control it's like you know she's being manipulated by her surroundings, by her circumstances. But you know, in that ending scene where she like turns the mirror and looks at herself, it's like, well, now she's in control again.
2: And that kind of goes with the theme of dissociation, which is something me and Tori kind of wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, go for that, guys. Because both of us, uh, being very open on the first episode of the podcast, have uh, some struggles with mental illness, and the character of, of Mima is kind of resonates with me a lot. That theme of you know, that line, you know, who are you? I- I've said that to myself a lot. And the theme of like, when she's looking at those incidental reflections, it's that sort of out of body experience you have when you dissociate. You feel like you're looking at yourself, but you don't recognize yourself. Mm-hmm. And the whole feeling split. In the beginning of the movie, when she talks to her mom, she drops her her regular accent for her Hiroshima dialect accent, and that's code oh, switching. Oh, neat. Neat notice. Uh, something that I read reading a review yeah, yeah. from a Japanese uh, reviewer mm-hmm. is that she has more of a local accent that she changes. Mm-hmm. She code switches for her mom, mm-hmm. and it's like she doesn't really have a natural self, and, you know, that's relatable, I'm sure, for Tori as well.
3: Seeing Mima kind of like... Hallucinate herself Because she was so confused and detached Like from who she was As a person It kind of like Not that I've done it to that extreme But like Taking a step back and just Realizing you know You don't know who you are as a person And I lost it It (laughs) feels like you're watching yourself Yeah it, it feels like you're watching yourself And um
2: and really that's sort of like, Who are you? I mean you I mean I've had moments where I look in the mirror and I'm like, who are
1: you? It's like it's like she's taking that question that is directed to the other cast member and directing it at herself instead.
2: You know, when she when she receives the facts, the, the traitor facts, which we are assuming is from Rumi, you know, she's she's being a traitor to this image of Mima that Rumi is creating for herself. You know, she turns out the window and says, Who are you? and it's it's somewhat refor- metaphorical or rhetorical and then somewhat she's looking at a window and therefore she's going to be looking at a reflection of herself.
0: Yeah, it's like that 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 line it's like you know, it in every scene that it's used, you know, the the meaning and the context changes for that line and I think that's really interesting mm-hmm. because the first time that she says it, it's like you think you think that she's directing it at the facts like, because you you see her, she's kind of staring at it, she's not saying anything, she gets it, she reads it, she looks out the window, and then we hear, excuse me, who are you? And then it cuts to her in the studio rehearsing that line, and then we realize, oh, that's the line that she's supposed to say. But then she uses it later on and, like, says it to herself, both, like, as, you know, practicing the line and sort of a self-reflexive thing. It's like, Even in that moment, the lines between her, you know, actress self and her real self are are blurred again.
3: And she actually, when she's kind of like breaking down towards the later half of the movie, like you actually hear her repeat that line a lot Mm -hmm. to her reflection and to other people that she comes across. I thought that was really interesting that that one simple line kept getting brought up again and again and again and I
2: noticed and this may just be me and my you know rudimentary Japanese picking up the words I recognize I noticed that uh, the word da who is used a lot to the point it does sound emphasized mm-hmm. um, I know when the executives for the TV show are talking there's like a scene and it's used like five times like they say "dare" like five times yeah. I think like it's very direct it's very direct it's almost like they're you know winking at the camera the theme yeah. of who. Is big. Who is Mima? Mm-hmm. Who is this murderer? Who do we believe in this story? Mm-hmm. Whose point of view is real? Mm-hmm. And
1: I think it's important to note, to note that she doesn't say anata dare. She says anata nano. And uh, for for those who might know Japanese, uh, uh, nano and no in general is a way to soften a question, to make it more feminine, to make it less direct. So I guess uh, that's another means of of that misdirection. Like, who is it going to, um, is it, is it a polite form? Is it to herself? Is it to a director? Is it to her idle self?
2: Right. It's very submissive. Whoever she's right, asking, right, right. she's, she's
0: deferring. It's very to, housewife. Yeah. Hmm. This episode of Borderline Podcast is brought to you by Japanese Linguistics. A <laughs> Death. Yeah. Desu It's
2: desu I'm sorry
1: Like get it right (laughs) Desu People only use the hard U Like
0: when they're trying to sell you something That's that's, that's what they taught me in Japan Amazing Um, So we've talked about a lot And we're getting towards the end of this podcast Mm -hmm. But is there anything in particular You guys want to talk about Like either Perfect Blue Or like other Satoshi Kon works That you really enjoy and why well, well one more note
1: I wanted to make on Perfect Blue mm-hmm. uh, and, and I watched the uh, interview with uh, Junko Iwao the, the voice actress who played me oh yeah please talk right, about that right, that was on the DVD release uh, for uh, I think uh, Madman Manga Entertainment yes yeah Manga Entertainment and, uh, and essentially um, she talked about dissociating herself like as an actress when she was recording this movie because she's recording a movie about an actress who's playing a role so that, that can get very metaphysical very quickly um, she actually did, I think, two or three different runs of the movie. Oh, she, wow. She did a run of Mima as the idol, like like Mima as herself, and then she did another run of reverse Mima, mm. or what was it called? Um, uh, False Mima. Uh, virtual Mima. Mm-hmm. Was, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. V- virtual Mima was was the term that they used. Uh, even in Japanese, that, w- that was her name. Uh, so she did two run-throughs the first was like the soft spoken like the the real type of mima and the second was this eternal idol this this false type of virtual mima so i think it's very important uh like that that behind the scenes part is very important in understanding not only how this movie was made but also how we're supposed to understand it mm-hmm. that they are two distinct roles like who just happened to share a name
0: right and I think that says a lot about, you know, this could go into a whole other tangent. We could totally talk about Paprika in this context as well. Um, or even Millennial Actress. Right, yeah, but, you know, sort of like the, the idea of personas. Like, uh, especially, and this, this film introduces, like, I don't know how early of an example this is. There might have been films, you know, earlier than this, but that deal, like, directly with the internet as a um, plot device. Mm -hmm. And it sort of introduces the idea of, you know, there is a difference between your online persona and who you are in real life. One thing you find
2: interest though, I'm sorry. I'm
0: sorry. Well, I was going to say, because, like, everything that you put up on the internet yourself is stuff that you choose to allow people to know. But that is not the totality of your person. And, you know, in Mima's case, you know, things are being put up there that are who she is but are also, like, a fabricated version of who she is, and in that way she feels, like, violated. So it's like, Mm -hmm. because she is not doing it, even though these things, some of them are not false, some of them are true, it is not being done by her, so it's very disingenuous, and so that makes her feel like this huge anxiety of, like, I'm being watched all the time, like, I have to be on my guard, and I think that really sort of drives into, uh, or drives home her, like, psychological sort of destability.
2: Mm-hmm. One thing that's interesting to me is that the name of the website is Mima's Room. And, yeah. And, uh, frequently... <laughs> that's so creepy. In, well, no, in, in Japan, the, the phrase someone's room is used in celebrity culture to mean, like, oh, this is a space where they're going to come and be their real selves. And it's not their real selves. It's it's fabricated. I know one thing I find amusing is sometimes, uh, mangaka will have, like, in character guides and stuff, uh, Quote, unquote interviews with characters and they'll call it the character's room mm-hmm. where this is them you know I'm like a celebrity I'm letting you into my space and it's an artificial space that's cultivated even with a fictional character but she reads these in her actual room her actual private space where she's allowed to be herself and so it's like someone is invading her room and remodeling it remodeling it into <laughs> this it's like no you have to be on all the time mm-hmm. And it's a blog, so it's supposedly coming from her personal space. So mm-hmm. it's it's very invasive and very controlling. A lot of the a lot of the the characters that are surrounding Mima are trying to project who they want her to be and pulling her in all different directions, which is only fracturing her identity even more.
0: Yes, we see that so much. Like, because there are so many conversations in the film that Mima is there. But she is not the one engaging in the conversations, but the conversations are about her. Mm-hmm. It's like she is trying to be shaped and molded by all of these outside forces, and she is both you know, trying to reconcile that and like sort of be the peacekeeper and make everyone happy, while also like trying to be her own person at the same time. But it's like she's been robbed of that, if that mm-hmm. makes sense.
1: And and slowly back to what you said, I think remodeling is a very good word, because um, there was one scene that really stuck out to me in her room, was uh, in her room room not the the artificial one was uh in a fit of rage she takes down the champ poster yeah. and people and it keeps getting put back up and mm-hmm. put back up it's like it the the, the two rooms get conflated like yeah. she isn't able you know, to control her own space, mm-hmm. and this person is coming in to put the poster back up. Mm-hmm. Be, be it the person running the blog, be it Rumi, being Nima herself, it's it's the space is consistently being invaded. So, remodeling is a great word, I think. The blog yep. is basically a ghost haunting the room, right? At this moment, mm-hmm. um, and the fish. <laughs> and, and, the, and the ghost fish It's a ghost fish A ghost
2: fish <laughs> But um, to go on the subject of Satoshi Kon movies uh, Tokyo Godfathers is probably my favorite I have to watch it every Christmas It makes me cry It's it's one of those movies that like Just always gets to me I love Hannah, obviously As the token homo, I love Hannah. Um,
0: Hannah I, or is it Hana? Hana, yeah, I'm Hana. sorry It's okay
2: I'm being a southern white person. How <laughs> about that there anima? Um,
0: <laughs> them uh, Chinese cartoons.
2: Okay, funny story. My parents call it that. Oh, no, um, <laughs> But I love that movie. I saw it on ovation the first time I saw it, and it, it makes me cry. So charming. It's charming. I love the ending theme. It's just like, is joy, uh, ode to joy, and mm-hmm. it's, I, I always say, if you're an anime fan, watch Tokyo Godfathers at Christmas.
0: Definitely. It's like the only anime Christmas movie I know of.
2: It's not like well, it, it's not like the special episode of some like bishojo anime where they're all in like you know sexy Santa costumes. Yes, it's like an actual Christmas movie. There is yes. an
3: exact anime about that. Uh, no. Why?
1: <laughs> <laughs> about which one?
3: Um, girls in sexy Santa outfits. Christmas
1: came was it, early. W- w- wasn't
0: and so that nice. wasn't that K on the Christmas special. No. But there is a K-On! Christmas special. there right. right, is
3: a K-On! Christmas special. Um, but back to the topic. Not a movie <laughs> of his, but I feel like everybody should watch Paranoia Agent at least once.
0: Um, agreed. I, I, you know, funny enough, or unfortunately enough, I haven't seen a Paranoia Agent. Um, do you, do you notice any, like, similarities between Perfect Blue and Paranoia Agent? Because I know, like, Satoshi Kon used Paranoia Agent to sort of, like, filter all of his ideas that he couldn't turn into movies.
3: Um... The, the building, the way he builds Dread, um, it's kind of like a slow burn, like, it starts and you can kind of feel it, and that's why I enjoy his work so much is because maybe it's just me, like, being really emotionally in tune and being able to pick up on that kind of stuff, but, like, you can feel it and it starts and it slowly and slowly builds and then eventually you're just kind of like, God, please get this over with, like, I just want this to be over (laughs) Um, And I think that's kind of present in all of his works, but um, more notably in Paranoia Agent.
0: Yeah, and I think it's very uh, Alfred Hitchcock in that regard, Mm -hmm. um, because he's all about, you know, sort of like creating this optimized anxiety through, you know, building tension. And in films like Psycho, for sure, like, Hitchcock does that a lot. It's like, um, a lot of the scenes in Psycho are, like, slow burns leading up to, like, a very intense, like, series of moments, but it's mostly the, that slow building of anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, through, you know, directorial choices and music and framing and all Aronofsky that too, sort of does that a lot. Yes, Watch for one, sure. Definitely.
2: Watching mm-hmm. Perfect Blue, I, I get a lot of vibes of, like, Rear Window. Okay. Uh, mostly just that idea of voyeurism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the window shots. There's uh, a
0: lot of that. We could talk about. We could do a whole podcast on like Alfred Hitchcock vo- and anime. Yeah, that and like voyeurism in Perfect Blue, Hitchcock. and that would be interesting because uh, we didn't we didn't really talk about too much of that, but maybe a little bit. Yeah.
1: No, I think it's it's very interesting. On the manga entertainment cover, they did mention Alfred Hitchcock.
0: Yeah, <laughs> there's a Roger Ebert quote about that from his review of uh, Perfect Blue. I have the box art right here. Yeah, it says. Um, <clears throat> A startling and powerful film. If Alfred Hitchcock partnered with Walt Disney, they'd make a picture like this. Just kidding. That wasn't Roger Ebert. That was actually Roger Corman, who um, gosh, why? I know that I know that name and I know who that face, but I totally forgot. Creator. A little That's war's right, yeah. uh
1: They okay. conquered the
2: world. Mm-hmm. I think he worked mm-hmm. with Troma Some.
1: Okay, well, yeah, I yeah. I think that that also plays into uh, the the um. Compartmentalization mm. of everything animated into anime or cartoons—they they instantly jump to Walt Disney, mm-hmm. who you know is very very different from someone who makes anime, right. but very
2: influential. Right, anime. right. We yeah. can't
1: understate Disney's influence.
2: On right, anime. right, but right. We we
0: could we could do another whole podcast just about uh, the relationship between anime and Disney, mm-hmm. but um, I don't think we have enough time for that today. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody talk about paprika. I, I have not seen that. In haven't anymore. seen paprika. I haven't
3: seen it in a really long time. Oh not enough to guys. be able to it. I'd, I'd hate
0: it. We just kind of like tapped,
1: like you know, tacked on paprika. I feel like it deserves its own moment.
0: You're absolutely right. Uh, paprika is another film that sort of deals with um, the relationship between like people and the media that um, that that Perfect Blue touches on. Some uh, at least wanted to reference that. Just to talk about more. I guess the, it's our podcast recommendation. <laughs> yeah, honestly, even for the
2: even for the, the panel.
0: <laughs> yeah, like a blanket recommendation. Anything Satoshi Kon has worked on, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, which, funny enough, I think he was a key animator on the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure OVA. You don't have to watch that. We unrecommend the JoJo's OVA.
3: Listen, everybody should watch it at least once.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody gets one.
3: Now,
1: now, uh, shameless plug. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to do it this year at Ichi but I would like to um, in the near future um, I do want to do a panel on Satoshi Kon and Aronofsky yes. and I guess how his work has influenced Hollywood uh, and, and you know American media in general mm-hmm. uh, so I guess watch out for that because uh, I've had a really good time planning it hopefully it'll come Out to completion very
0: soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you guys will probably see that panel uh, come to fruition at one of the many conventions that we do. Um, We mainly do in-state conventions, but you know times are changing, and we are always interested in expanding Uh, conventions that Borderline Panels is a part of. Are currently Ichiban Con in Concord. Um, Triad Anime Convention in Greensboro, formerly Winston Salem, uh, Amazement in Raleigh, um, Asheville Anime Regional Convention in where's that con again? Um, Asheville. Ash- Ash- oh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's in it's Ashboro, right? Ashboro. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. There's nothing in Ashboro. <laughs> and uh, Hoshi Con. Oh wait, mm, oops. There. Wa Rest in peace. Um, rip. rip. Anyway. Um So, I guess that's the end of this podcast. Um, Hopefully we can get another episode out to you guys as soon as possible um, with another riveting uh, topic. And uh, thank you guys for listening today. Um, I'm Austin of Borderline Panels. Uh, If you want to follow me on uh, Instagram, it's at BebopShock. Um, If you want to follow me on... Twitter, I guess you can if you want, and that's also at Bebop Shock. But I don't really update my Twitter, even though I probably should. Uh, Borderline Panels also has a Facebook page that you can go like, where we put, you know, updates from all of our panels, um, um, pictures we take from conventions, and sort of our lineups of what we've got planning. So you guys want to end it out a little bit, talk about whatever, um, little plugs you want to do. Don't don't follow me. <laughs> don't follow Andrew. Don't uh, follow me on Instagram. Yeah. Don't follow me home. <laughs> if you want to follow me,
2: uh, all of my usernames are at calvacom That is c l c a l v a underscore k u n. That's my my anime list, Twitter and Instagram.
0: And who are you again?
2: Uh, my name is hey, Solid. Excuse me,
3: who are you? I'm not
0: talking I'm butchering the Japanese. <laughs> Tori?
3: Um, I. Let's
2: not do your Tumblr.
3: <laughs> yeah, um, let's, let's not do that. But um, if you want to follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Um, wait, no, my Twitter handle is different. Let's not follow me on Twitter because all I do is scream there. Where are we going? Um, I don't know. Where are we going? <laughs> if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's at Ghost Story, And that's S-T-O-R-I.
1: Wow, I wonder why your name is is that,
0: Tori.
3: Because I'm dead on the inside.
0: Hey! And uh, if anybody lives in the Greensboro area, um, we are all Greensboro locals. Most of us, uh, we're all from other towns, but we sort of congregate into Greensboro. Um, I actually run the Geeksboro Coffee and Beverage Company Anime Club that meets on Saturdays at 1 p.m. We also have a Facebook page that you can follow. Uh, not affiliated with borderline panels, but we definitely work together a lot. And uh, Geeksboro Anime Club is a big sort of uh, anime staple in the Greensboro community and the greater North Carolina area. <coughs> greater <laughs> North Carolina area, if I can say that, that without that, my that, voice cracking.
1: I don't think there is a greater North Carolina there's, area. There's not a greater
2: North <laughs> Larger <laughs>
0: North Carolina area. Better. This
1: large
2: state, like, mass, land mass, it is North Carolina.
0: Exactly. Well, that's all we have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we will see you again very soon. Say bye, everybody. Bye. Fare thee bye. well. Bye.